Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here, as always, with co-host Alan Goldman. How you doing, Alan? Pretty good. New week, new, new feelings. Yeah, and we are going to discuss Israel's shifting relationship with Iran, if we can call it a relationship, and we have an excellent returning guest for that topic. Alan, would you please introduce our guest? I'd be greatly honored. We're very happy today that Dr. Aaron Lerman, the Vice President of Jerusalem Institute for Strategy and Security, can come back with us again and help us um, get some clarity on what's going on in Iran and the region and, and what's happening. So, Yeah, we sure do appreciate it. Welcome back. <laughs> well, with the, with the recent assassination of the head of Iran's nuclear program, and with an incoming Biden administration, and with Iran making all sorts of interesting moves, we wanted to hear from you, your assessment of what what's going on. Like, it just seems like things are bubbling up, things are changing so quickly, that it's hard to keep track of. You know, Israel's negotiating with Saudi Arabia, there's so many moving pieces. Yeah. And we know you're good at helping us sort of get a sense of what's going on with Iran. So let, let, let me first of all clarify one thing. When it comes to uh, the murky world of things that come under the Official Secrets Act, I have three rules. One is I don't talk about things I know. The second is I don't talk about things I don't know. And the third one is I never let anyone know if the reason I'm not talking is the first or the second. <laughs> So that sounds, I, uh, that sounds like good policy. So the only comment I can make on the question of uh, uh, who could have killed uh, Fahriz Adeh in the suburbs of Tehran is to do my standard imitation of Inspector Clouseau having a conversation with the widow. <laughs> uh, Madam, uh, did the deceased have any enemies? So uh, <laughs> he goes to fetch the local phone book and the list of member nations of uh, members of the United Nations. I mean, this man uh, was was uh, busy doing something which puts uh, the world at large at risk, and certainly the entire yeah. region. He was the head of the military police. He's not the father of It's called the father. He's not the father of Iran's nuclear project. He is. He was the leader of the nuclear weapon program, the weapon group, which came under different names, AMAD and then SPND and this and that. But since we have uh, acquired the entire archive of the project, uh, we knew uh, all that needed to be known about him and so did the rest of the world, uh, those who wanted and to just just to make sure that our, our listeners understand that lots of nations have nuclear power that they use for providing energy to their country. That's not the same as developing a nuclear weapons program. And no. Iran has claimed that they're using it for, you know, peaceful energy needs when there's clear evidence that they're weaponizing it. And one of the countries, right? So that, that's why he's such a danger. He was such a dangerous individual. Yeah, we knew that before we stole the uh, archive. Uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago, but uh, this just confirmed uh, our what we knew already, that the nu Iranian nuclear program is a military program. Um, and in this respect, the, the, the JCPOA, the famous Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, it's not a, people call it the, an agreement, it's not a signed agreement with Iran, because uh, had it been signed, Obama would have been obliged to bring it to the Senate for, for ratification. 
and he didn't have uh, he didn't have fifty. He wouldn't go. He didn't have fifty, let alone sixty-seven. He had just he broke forty to prevent a vote against it, but he didn't have mm-hmm. the, uh, any anything like uh, the majority for ratification. So this was an unsigned document, one hundred fifty-seven pages, and it starts for page one with a lie, namely that this is a uh, a civilian problem. It isn't. It never was. Uh-huh. And Fahreza there was the key to weaponize the... Uh, well, isn't it the, also a civilian program? Like, aren't uh, there no, they, no they, 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 have a Bush, they have a power station in Boucher yeah. that was provided by the... was built by a German company and then was run, finished by the Russians. It's operated with Russian cons- uh, involvement. Um, that's more or less a legit operation. But the enri- it's like when a mafia don has a has you know an yeah, oil business yeah, in front sure. and a little cafe in front and in the back there. Yeah. Well, so so do others in the region have uh, power stations. Uh, but this mm-hmm. one, but uh, the, the enrichment program, and for a while they also had uh, a plutonium uh, track, uh, were clearly designed to give them enough fissile material for a bomb. And Mr. Fahreza uh, there was, uh, by the way. A, a brigadier general in the IRGC uh, was uh, in the business of trying to see how you can fit the nuclear device into a warhead. And he was also uh, dealing with the North Koreans on the question of the warheads. All this is public knowledge. I'm not giving you any... Uh, I mean, we've made this knowledge public deliberately, uh, having achieved it in uh, somewhat less uh, overt ways. But uh, all of this... And let me just step in again for the listeners that there's a difference between having a bomb and being able to deliver the bomb. And the warhead right. is something you can put on a missile. So his job was to figure out, once we make a bomb, how we can launch that bomb into another country. Yeah, and, and a bomb needs also a highly sophisticated mechanism to trigger it at the right moment. So uh, mm-hmm. there's quite a lot of, of knowledge and technology that goes into uh, tooling a, a, a military weapon that's different from a nuclear device. When the U.S. Uh, tested the first time in, uh, in July uh, 45, they tested the device. It can be a huge thing. The Trinity device. And, and, but only after they had solved the question of how to package this into a bomb, this became a weapon. So the Fahriza there was the man uh, in charge of weaponizing the Iranian program. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, his demise uh, comes at an interesting point in time. Now, of course, everything of this sort um, can happen because simply there's an opportunity, you know, a window of uh, intelligence give, telling you who's going to be where, and that's not always mm-hmm. open, and you need to, to, to utilize the, the windows of opportunity that open up. But in addition to that, I would say uh, three things. First of all, uh, the Iranians have been accelerating their enrichment program. They already have some of the, or most of the knowledge necessary uh, to uh, construct a weapon. Maybe there were some issues uh, that that still needed to be resolved. And uh, uh, we are looking at uh, um, a situation where next year could be uh, a crucial year in which they will come very close to the point of uh, what has been referred to as a, a fast break towards enough material 
for a bomb. And that's now. I, I have two questions about that. One of them is we've been hearing, and I and I I try to be somewhat skeptical of these sort of analyses. And part of what makes me skeptical is we've been hearing that they're on the uh, at the point of that break now, within a year, for what a decade, I would say that we've been told that they're on this precipice of being. And, and no, my second no, no, question no. is: uh, No, the truth is that uh, I would say this for the JCPOA. That uh, yeah. for for a while, for a while it pushed back the uh -huh. the timetable. Not much more than that. Uh, our criticism of it, and, and Israelis and others who criticized it, was that um, a decade is nothing for a nation mm -hmm. uh, like Iran with long term ambitions, and for a nation like ours, uh, if we face an existential threat in twenty. 30 instead of in 2020, that doesn't really resolve our problem. But so, yes, the JCPOA, because they uh, um, had to put uh, out of Iran some of their already produced fissile material, they had to they slow down their production of fissile material, they closed their plutonium production facility uh, in Iraq. Uh, um, there was supposed to be a, a, uh, a reactor that would produce plutonium for them, and they, they uh, closed it up, disabled it completely. But uh, now enrichment is picking up again in leaps and bounds. Well, they, uh, there was a hitch because the facility in Natanz mysteriously uh, exploded a few months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Uh, we are. We were looking uh, as of the middle of this year. I think even from as of the late last year, uh, the Jerusalem Institute of Strategy and Security put forward an assessment that within the year, a year or two, we may be facing a, a situation of, of, of a full-scale crisis over Iran's nuclear military nuclear program. And uh, soon enough, this was uh, echoed. I, I would say that. Uh, uh, the military intelligence, Israeli, uh, the DMI has also uh, published, uh, let, let it be known that this is also uh, their assessment, that we are facing uh, a, a an emerging crisis. Now, you can do all sorts of things. You can sit and whine, you can send the Air Force to, to attack, and there is a full range of options in between for us and for others who are uh, who have good reason to be worried. So, uh, first of all, there is this acceleration, which is part of the story. The second element is the need to go for the Iranians to understand that they are totally vulnerable in terms of intelligence penetration. And I think the, uh, the American elimination of Qasem Soleimani was a significant uh, indication uh, of their problem in this regard, but uh, the uh, killing uh, of a highly guarded target in the very heart of Tehran with such efficiency and with, with uh, no traces and all kinds of legends being spread by the Iranians that this was done by remote control and God knows what else. Um, all of this indicates a, a, an extreme degree of vulnerability which means that when they are now considering their options of response, and also when they're thinking about their nuclear program, 
they need to take into account that they are naked to the world uh, in this respect. So that's the second point. The third point is that uh, somehow the timing does seem to have a, a connection of sorts to the meeting between uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, MBS, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, effective ruler of Saudi Arabia, of Saudi Arabia the uh, crown prince, but his father is not of, often not entirely there. So he's, he's the boss and, and Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo, which took place in the emerging new uh, super modern city, uh, northern Saudi city of Nome, which is not far from this, the Israeli border. So <coughs> the Jordanian border. So um, uh, this meeting um, signaled uh, the growing cohesion of, uh, of uh, uh, interests over the Iranian challenge and the need to think out what to do on the assumption that there will be a, a change of administration on the 20th of January 21. And uh, what kind of, uh, what kind of uh, message um, should be sent to the incoming uh, Biden team about this, uh, the importance and the, the meaning of, of the Iranian portfolio? Biden has spoken of the need to go back to the JCPOA. He was vice president uh, under Obama. He was a very engaged vice president when he came to foreign policy. After all, he's been the, the head of uh, foreign, uh, I mean, foreign affairs committee of the Senate for years. As he was knowledgeable on, on these issues. So uh, you can chalk the JCPOA also to his name, although the negotiations were conducted. I, I would posit Kerry, really. poorly conducted. Uh, by John Kerry. Um, um, I'm glad he's going to do uh, uh, global warming and, and not anything to do with with weapons and strategic issues. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure the planet's in good hands now that, uh, uh, that this will stop he's, climate he's, change. He's, he's a good man. As they used to say in Israel yeah. once upon a time, he's a good man in the worst sense of the word. <laughs> That's to say he really, he means well. He, he means well. Yeah. He, he seeks... Uh, uh, to bring others to do good things with him, he doesn't always take Isn't into account. Is he a bit account. of what Israelis used to call an astronaut? Well, that wouldn't I wouldn't say, but he be, he honestly believed. I think that Javad the, well, the, the purposes of Javad Zarif and Rohani cohere with his, and they don't. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the uh, day, of in any case, neither Rohani nor Zarif make any really important decisions in Iran. That's all in the hands of Khamenei and the IRGC. So anyway, uh, the team is now right, coming in and, and they, will, okay. they need to rethink what are they going to do with the, with the Iranians. Mm -hmm. So can I just ask you about the targeted assassinations or targeted killings, whatever we call them? Um, because it, 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 it's not, what, I, what I'm trying to understand what you're saying is the strategy behind it is to show the Iranians the vulnerability, not necessarily that it's going to put back the program at all. I mean, one person well, it doesn't really have that. that. No, no, How no, much no, effect no, does it have I, one person have on it? You, you sometimes. Well, I, I can I can also, yeah, sure. The question of decapitation in, in organizations which are essentially secretive, uh, where much of the uh, delicate information does reside in the mind of one person, um, is an interesting one uh, with examples in both directions. Look, years and years mm -hmm. ago, 
we uh, years ago, the 32 years, 38 years, <laughs> we killed the leader of Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, Mosavi. Right. Um, and uh, we, he was replaced by a man of much greater ability. And uh, mm -hmm. we've suffered the consequences ever since with Hassan Nasrallah, who now hides right. so well that it's much more difficult to find the window of opportunity. Right. Uh, so sometimes it doesn't work. On the other hand, I can think of a few, a number of cases in which the, the demise of one individual seriously um, hampered the capacity of the organization he was leading. Right. Um, when uh, um, Abu Jihad, Khalil uh, Wazir, Fatah leader, was killed in Tunis. Um, that's a famous story there. The engineer. Yeah, no, not the engineer in Gaza. The, he was the head of uh, what they called uh, the Western Front Organization, which was the terrorist, uh -huh. terrorist operations uh, arm of Fatah, of, of the PLO, as, as part of the PLO. And he, uh, after a, a, an attack in Israel in which three uh, women were killed on a bus in the Negev, um, um, the decision was taken, uh, uh, I think the story goes that uh, Yalon, who was later to become a, a chief of staff and minister of defense, was among the people in, in that operation. Um, he was killed. His organization never recovered. It, uh -huh. it simply fell apart. It was never, it was never the same. Uh, the Hezbollah foreign operations um, became uh, uh, were led by Ahmad Mourner when uh, he was eliminated in Damascus. Legend is that this was a joint Israeli-American operation. Uh, they had their own accounts to settle with it. Um, the um, result was that uh, they, they kept on trying, but they did very, very poorly uh, worldwide. Right. So, um, uh, I think the record is mixed. But um, there was, I assume that whoever made the decision on Fakhriza there um, took into consideration that there were many things which, you know, different um, threads and, and led to him, but his elimination may actually have a serious impact on the program as such. Add to this the broader implications about uh, uh, Iran's vulnerability and about the determination of certain players in the international community to prevent Iran from having a nuclear weapon, come what may. Mm -hmm. He's more he's more Steve Jobs than Bill Gates in this scenario. Um, well, I, I am not in a position to judge. That's a rough analogy. Uh, well, good yeah. one. I'm not in a position to judge the validity of the analogy, but I think I know what you mean. Mm -hmm. he, he had a lot of it was there in his head. And, and I guess my, my next question is, if we're talking about Iran as a nuclear threat, once they cross the threshold to one bomb, and I, and I hate to talk in doomsday worst case scenarios, but how much damage does one bomb do to the country? In other words, with tens of thousands, let's say 100,000 Israeli dead. No, that's not the question. Let's say. First of all, What's the, uh, why, go ahead. That's not the question. Because once you cross the threshold and they use it and we have 
accord, as they say in Israel, according to foreign sources, we have second strike capability. That's the end of, of Iran as we know it. Uh, but right. uh, but the damage to, in Israel also would be very extensive and painful and right. horrific. But but not existential. Well, uh, I, I hate to minimize uh, no, no, a Hiroshima. We, countries of you know Japan is still alive. It took two bombs and it's still right. there. But uh, let let me be clear here. The question is the effective deterrence that would be generated. For example, uh, take a situation where Hezbollah is raining destruction on northern Israel, on, on all of Israel, uh, and the IDF will be deterred from taking massive counteraction because the Iranian uh, threat will be hanging over our heads. That's one of the possible implications of Iran coming into possession of the bomb. This is, uh, some people, and I've heard the prime minister speak to that effect, um, consider the Iranian um, regime so irrational so much uh, driven by a uh, well, the uh, Shia Islamic uh, um, variation of what we would call messianic uh, impulses, the coming of the uh, uh, missing Imam, and uh, her, uh, they're apocalyptic apocalyptic actions that would lead to the end of days that they may actually launch against Israel just to trigger this. Uh, a cataclysmic event. Um, you don't need to make that assumption about them to see that the possession of the bomb by a country committed to Israel's destruction uh, could have very serious consequences for our daily life, for our capacity to deal with threats, even if they don't, you know, just use it. If it hangs over our heads while they launch Hezbollah and the Islamic Jihad against us, and while they maybe, you know, intervene in Iraq uh, with impunity because now they have uh, a deterrent, and then uh, from then on to Jordan, etc., they are already deeply entrenched in Syria, and so on and so forth. The situation could become strategically untenable, even if you don't posit um, an impulsive use. Of, web, of a weapon against them. So this, this is why this is absolutely important, and this is why the, the Begin doctrine, as, as Begin put it forward after the destruction of the Osirak uh, reactor in, uh, uh, near Baghdad Iraq. in 81, uh, is as valid now as it was in 40 Iraq. years ago. Right. So you're saying, words, it's, so you're saying words, it changes the, the strategic balance in the entire Middle East, really? Yes, um, it, un it undermines a, a, a vital element of our security equation in, in a very right. dangerous way. And it, it complements the um, asymmetric warfare that uh, organizations like Hezbollah and, uh, and, and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, use against us. Right. We know how to handle uh, armies in the field. But uh, uh, asymmetric warfare uh, under the cover of an Iranian deterrent could be a very dangerous proposition. Right. And they are developing, you know, and, and the idea is that then that they would have this sort of metaphorical umbrella that, that would allow them to pursue, they are pursuing improvements in their 
precision missile and drone technology so that their asymmetric warfare could have even bigger impact. Indeed. And that's just destabilizing to everything. Yes, that's all part of the same equation. Well, there, there are also hopeful elements. I mean, uh, we're talking to the Lebanese government about the deal in the Mediterranean. Uh, President Orn, who's for many years a, a loyal uh, ally of Hezbollah, a turncoat, he was once our ally, and then he became their ally, uh, is now talking about the possibility of an agreement. Uh, Lebanon, many, many Lebanese are sick and tired of Hezbollah. Down the road, uh, things may change for the better, but right now, in the next few years, with a high degree of uncertainty, uh, we can, uh, for us, uh, it is of vital importance to prevent Iran from crossing the threshold. And how, how does that play into the, all the, the Abraham Accords and the, the agreements that we've uh, been it, seeing and like Lebanon, talking about Lebanon? Well, Lebanon, it's a different matter because they're in the right. U, Well, what plays is that the uh, U.S. sanctions on Iran have really reduced their ab ability to support Hezbollah financially. So uh, Hezbollah is in dire straits. Lebanon is in dire straits after the explosion. And, and so they need the income from uh, future income from the gas, and that cannot be. Nobody would invest in the, in in, in uh, exploring there mm. if uh, it's a disputed area. So they need to cut the deal one way or the other. Right. But in the larger sense, um, the Iranians are really in deep trouble, uh, and and so uh, their aggressiveness um, could. Uh, Def could definitely increase, particularly if they find out that uh, Biden um, is not immediately going to give them everything they want. Uh, there are people around Biden, uh, uh, Lincoln, Flournoy, Sullivan, who, who are on one hand uh, uh, willing to go back to the Obama template, but people tend to forget under Obama there was more than one voice. Kerry was a bit carried away, forgive my... <laughs> uh, alliteration here, but, uh, but some of the people around Obama remained very skeptical about the Iranians, and some of the sanctions stayed in place. Jack Lew, when, when he was uh, Secretary of Treasury, and so and so. So, um, if the Iranians find out that, uh, Ira that uh, they are not getting exactly what they wanted as, as fast as they wanted, which is sanctions relief, they could actually uh, lash out against the Gulf. Uh, countries. They could be the target. Mm -hmm. So one more reason for Israel and the Gulf countries uh, to draw closer together. I would, I would say that it, it works the other way around. It's not that uh, the um, uh, Iranian issue uh, is a product of the Abrahamic agreements. The, uh, the Abraham agreements are in themselves the long-term fruit of the Saudis and uh, who are, you know, more cautious or not moving that fast, uh, and the UAE, which is a more small and agile animal, and the Bahrainis, who are basically the, the Saudis' uh, um, uh, envoys in this matter. Proxy. Uh, they're, prox they're really very close to the, the Saudis and have survived internal disturbances because of the Saudi intervention. Uh, the, the three of them, have come to see Israel as the champion of their position 
in Washington and in the struggle to defang the Iranian presence in Syria. So it's, it's diplomatic and military actions that Israel took that persuaded um, the key players in the Gulf that we are a worthy partner. I'm not saying yet ally. Ally is perhaps an overstated term, but uh, a partner. We, we are in the same alignment. Uh, it's, by the way, it's true vis-a-vis Iran, it also happens to be true also vis-a-vis Erdogan's neo-Ottoman ambitions in the Eastern Mediterranean. The UAE is in tether with the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Cypriots, the French against Turkish ambitions. And Israel is a, a silent but important participant in this uh, alignment of forces. So um, on both uh, the Turkish and above all the Iranian challenge, uh, we are uh, looking at things from a very, very close perspective. I used to say that the list of priorities of Israel and the UAE is so close that you can hardly find uh, uh, any daylight between us. There's even a story that Dory Gold likes to tell when he was director general of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where he met his counterpart from a Gulf country. And um, he, uh, as the meeting began, uh, his, his counterpart asked him for his page of talking points. So he handed it over and he looks at it and says, um, you copied mine. <laughs> And I had a similar situation. I was giving a briefing to a friend of mine from a friendly country in Asia. And uh, after when I was still Deputy National Security Advisor, he cuts me off after the the second or third minute. And he says, you're wasting my time. I said, (laughs) my friend, what happened? He said, I've just flown in from the Gulf. I've heard exactly the same briefing already. (laughs) So this alignment is not new. How much is it, if we go back for a minute to the um, very controversial Netanyahu speech in Congress against the JCPOA? Yeah. Uh, by the uh, way, he was in favor of an agreement, but not this agreement. Right. Uh, people say he, he was right. against an agreement. If you look at it, he was telling them it can be improved. The, the, there should be no uh, uh, sunset clauses. Uh, Iranian regional behavior should be brought in, and the ballistic missile mm-hmm. program should be brought in. He didn't say right. no deal. He said you could definitely, with your leverage, could have been made a better deal. And that's right. as true now as it was true then. Right. Um, I, right. I have to tell you something which I, I really uh, agonize about. Because many of my friends, American Jewish friends, uh, saw this as an affront. And I will say this. If, if you think, and some people in Israel do, and, and I'm sure that some people in America think that it was a mistake to oppose the JCPOA. But the JCPOA was a good thing. It gave us a breathing space. Maybe Iran will change. Maybe things will get better. We need more time. You know, that's what Chamberlain thought in Munich. I need a couple of years. That couple of years cost 60 million lives. But uh, but let's say you can make an argument. Okay, go ahead and make it. Or it allowed, or it allowed Great Britain a year to get ready, get its army ready for a war with Germany. Depends on how you look at it. Still. Yeah, but but von Brauchitsch was about to to launch a coup against Hitler if if he came back from Munich with a war on his hands. So that would mm-hmm. have saved a lot of mm-hmm. lives. But anyway, um, uh, so that's the lesson of Munich, as far as I'm concerned. But to go back to the argument, let's say that's a legitimate argument. But to say 
You don't insult a, a sitting an elected American president whom we voted for, regardless of the reason, is basically to say, I have not learned anything from the betrayal of the Roosevelt administration during the Holocaust. And that was a man that 95% of the Jews voted for. Right. And you can ask Rabbi Silver or read, uh, you cannot ask him anymore, or read David Wyman's right. book, The Abandonment of the Jews, to understand just yeah. how serious the problem was. So right. uh, you don't make your considerations on an existential question for the Jewish people on, uh, 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 on whether or not the President of the United States would feel insulted. Mm -hmm. so, right, so well, I guess yeah, what that I would... Seems yeah, so what I was going at, though, is how much did this influence the Gulf states in terms of they were very Israel as the as the spokesperson for the... Oh, yes, they were very impressed. There was an interesting situation. A few weeks uh, um, after the speech, uh, Obama spoke at American University and he said, uh, nobody but Israel is opposed to this agreement. <laughs> and then um, a couple of days later, apparently he felt obliged, uh, which is strange, I mean, in, in politics, but he felt obliged to tell the truth. And this was in an interview with Fareed Zakaria. And, Fareed, and he says to Fareed, nobody but Israel is openly opposed mm. to this agreement. Because what he, right. what he heard, uh, what his people heard, uh, from the Saudis and, and the other Gulfies uh, uh, behind closed doors uh, does not bear repeating in a polite company. <laughs> so, so he had to basically uh, modify his statement somewhat. Right. Well, he didn't have to, but uh, you got to give him some credit at least for. <laughs> uh, yes, but, but uh, and one last question so, before so that definitely yeah, made us heroes to the Gulfies, and that yeah. uh, I think that laid the foundation. For much that has happened. One since. last question bef before we uh, wrap up. You, you mentioned that there's this idea that, that perhaps the Iranians are irrational enough that they would be willing to start a nuclear war even if it ended in their complete and utter destruction, destruction. I wonder, is that really irrational or they just have a different... Because what you described, if, if, the, if the Ayatollah really thinks apocalyptically, so it's not necessarily irrational. It's just a different value system. In other words... Like we know, for instance, that I don't know if it's true, but Castro in the '90s told McNamara he would have willing to would would have willing to let Cuba burn to the ground if it meant taking out America's East Coast in a nuclear exchange. In other words, there are what we we might feel that's irrational, but in another cultural out, outlook, that type of self destruction may be yeah. rational. The whole point is that MAD is not uh, absolutely uh, valid tool of analysis when it right. comes to countries driven by not only ideological but even uh, kind of religiously uh, colored ideological fervor. Uh, I mean, didn't the Iranians send their high school boys into minefields yes. to clear them in their war with Iraq? Like, well, it's, it's a different culture. So, well, so did the, the best of British uh, um, commanders in World War One. Uh, the irrationality, in, human irrationality, is a subject for a couple of other meetings. We could go on and on <laughs> about about uh, uh, what it acts, what uh, bounded, what is rationality, bounded rationality, mm. uh, what we consider mm. rational goals, 
and what others consider uh, rational goals and whether you work within these goals uh, uh, in a rational manner. But all I was saying is you don't need to posit an apocalyptic uh, right. position right. by the Iranian leadership to see that the consequences of Iran in possession of the bomb could be very, very serious. I, sometimes I use the imagery from a story by uh, Orwell, who was for a while uh, a colonial uh, functionary in Burma, about the elephant, uh, mm -hmm. shooting an elephant. Mm -hmm. Shooting an elephant. Yeah, so it's a story uh, I was obliged to read in high school, and I still remember the situation mm -hmm. there. He didn't want to shoot the elephant. The, the elephant has, has gone berserk, trampled somebody to death. Uh, but by now it was docile, uh, standing there eating battle nuts from uh, uh, somebody's stand. But he has the gun. He is the authority. He is power. Mm -hmm to the village. The entire village is behind him, waiting for him to shoot the elephant. Now, in, in this mm -hmm. story, Iran would be over, the bomb would be the gun, the village would be the region, and we would be the elephant. Can they then withstand the pressure to, to escalate in a, in a regional mm -hmm. crisis? So we don't need, as I said, we don't need to posit a, an apocalyptic purpose or an apocalyptic right. uh, mindset to see why this is extremely dangerous. I mean, you could argue the consequences of World War One were so dire, no country would have gotten into it, but they did. Yeah. So it's like sometimes these sort of predictions <laughs> of, well, it's irrational, so it won't happen. You have to you have to be able to strategically reckon with the fact that sometimes these things have momentum of their own and uh, we, uh, get out of hand. Our reckoning is in the form of the Begin Doctrine which says that given our, his, our unique history, and that's understood by many countries in the world, given our unique history, uh, we need to retain our deterrent posture, and we also need to uh, prevent a, a, a hostile country in the region from having the bomb. With all the and you're confident about Israel and its allies working this through over the next... Well, I, I, they probably wouldn't have paid me a salary when I was in military intelligence to be confident about anything. I, <laughs> I, uh, I think there is a path forward, uh, even with an administration that wants to uh, um, turn away from the Trump, Trump legacy and uh, to a different track. But if they're going to work closely with allies, then I would think, for example, that the French are very sober and very serious about the need to prevent Iran from having the bomb. They're very close to the UAE. They're even closer than they were because they cooperate on the Mediterranean issue. And, uh, and uh, this puts us in, a, in an interesting situation. Blinken, who grew up in France, is going to uh, build bridges between the Biden administration and its European allies that were burned uh, in the Trump era, um, that could actually entail cooperation on on preventing Iran from having a weapon. And as you said, Israel's not against an agreement. It just wants a, a an agreement one. that's going to stop it from getting the bomb. That makes sense. <laughs> better sense. A better yeah. one. Yes. Well, not only the bomb, but there are other policies and yeah. other disrupt the disruptive behaviors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A bigger picture. Well, I have to tell you, I mean, this is very helpful for me. As I said at the beginning, it's so many pieces, it's hard for me, but you, you really, uh, uh, once again, have helped us 
make some order out of the chaos with your owl-like perception and wisdom. <laughs> so, okay. uh, so we really appreciate it. We appreciate and we appreciate even just your time. We know you had there was some technical difficulties, but we really appreciate you. Well, I'm uh, glad we could make it happen uh, pushing this time. Through. Yeah. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it so much. Thank you. Uh, so you don't have to sign off, but I'm going to end the recording. Okay. Thank. Okay. Okay. Bye bye.